Happy National Bird Day to you. At least that's when this episode is originally released, January 5th. Um, before we get started, we just wanted to make you aware we are really excited about a lot of things right now. First and foremost, we are now an official member of Kids Listen, which is a grassroots international organization committed to creating and promoting high-quality audio content for kids and families and all sorts of listeners. Um, we're absolutely thrilled to be alongside some truly great programs, so we encourage you heartily to check them out at kidslisten.org. Uh, you're going to find some great stuff. Uh, also, we'll soon be launching a Patreon campaign, so if you're listening in the future and would like to offer some financial support, please check us out. We'll be up there in early 2017. Uh, as always, follow us on social media. And give us reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. It helps enormously. We'd appreciate it ever so much. On with the show. Hey, welcome to The Past and the Curious. Thank you for joining us. I'm Mick Sullivan, the creator and producer of The Past and the Curious. We were really excited to learn from our new friends at Tumble, a science podcast for kids, that January 5th is National Bird Day. Well, we happen to have a batch of true tales from the past about our fine feathered friends. So with this new knowledge, we raced to finish them up, find a song we liked, and get it all ready in time. So this entire episode is bird themed. Listen to it on National Bird Day, or any other day of the year for that matter, birds are always interesting. You're going to like our first tale. It's about a scientist who just couldn't figure out where birds went in the summer. His hypothesis was out of this world. You're going to hear the story read by Miss Victoria Ribel, our friend from here in Louisville, Kentucky. Enjoy! It's really hard for us to imagine what life was like in 1600s. In just the last 100 years or so, science and technology have taught us so much about our world and beyond. With satellites and radars, we can understand weather patterns. With wildly powerful microscopes, we can understand the smallest building blocks of life. And today, we also have the tools to understand details of how different animals behave and just why they do so. In the 1600s, all of these things puzzled people. Even the scientists and researchers whose job it was to learn and teach could find themselves perplexed. The lack of technology and the inability to easily share information would often keep them from discovering the correct answers to their questions. And sometimes their results, when considered by us today, can seem funny. Charles Morton was an English scientist who wondered, among other things, where do the birds go in the winter? You see, he and others clearly observed a number of birds feeding, nesting, and flying around, like birds do, each spring and summer. But once the leaves began to fall and the cold temperatures returned, the birds were gone. Nowhere to be found. Today, we know what happens, but it wasn't obvious to Charles Morton or anyone else. There were all sorts of suggestions that came before him. One person speculated that the birds actually blossomed on trees, like flowers in the springtime. Another theorized that when the weather changed and birds disappeared, they actually flew into lakes and rivers. They swam to the bottom and buried themselves in the mud. 
This would supposedly keep them warm, and when spring returned, they'd burst through the surface to resume their regularly scheduled bird lives. At the end of the 17th century, or the 1600s as you could say, Charles Morton wrote a paper with an otherworldly idea of what became of birds. Now it should be said that Charles Morton was schooled and later became an educator at Oxford, as in Oxford, a very good school. Later, living in America, he wrote a textbook that was used at Yale and Harvard, as in Yale and Harvard. So this guy was no dummy. His paper was quite elaborate, and he obviously put great thought into it. I mean, the title alone is seriously difficult to understand. It was called, An Essay Toward the Probable Solution of This Question. Whence came the stork and the turtle dove, the crane and the swallow, when they know and observe the appointed time of their coming? But long rambling title or not, it was still wildly incorrect. To be fair, he was mostly correct in deducing why the birds disappeared. They were naturally reacting to the shorter days, the less abundant food, and the cold temperatures. It was in their inherent nature to leave. But where do they go? Where could they go? Charles Morton wrote, Now whither these creatures should go, unless it was to the moon. Yes, Charles Morton believed birds migrated each winter to the moon. What? With great detail, Morton explained that these birds would embark on a journey of 60 days, flying a distance of 179,712 miles to the moon. Now, if you're mathematically inclined, you may have already figured that this would require them to fly at a speed of 125 miles per hour. While in a state of near sleep, living only off of stored fat in outer space. Morton wagered that this was possible because in space there is no gravity nor wind resistance to fight with, making for smooth sailing to the moon. What a notion, huh? It's not known how many people believe Morton's theory, but it would still be another century before people began to understand why birds disappeared and where they really went when they did. About a hundred years later, in 1822, a man in Germany was hunting when a stork, which we can assume looked tasty to him, flew above his head. The bird was shot, and when the hunter recovered the stork, he found that there was a strange spear stuck through the bird's body. He took it to a university where the bird and the spear were examined. It appears that this German fellow wasn't the first hunter to think this same bird looked tasty. The spear was from a part of Africa, thousands of miles to the south and well below the equator. A hunter there had pierced the poor stork, but the wound was not fatal. So when the seasons changed again, this bird, we'll call him William Stork Spear, was able to continue his migrating flight patterns. He just did so with a spear stuck through his body. But if not for the spear, there would have been no way to know where the bird had been before flying over the dangerous German airspace. For all they know, it could have come from Spain or China or the bottom of the river or perhaps even the moon. But because the spear was recognized to be African, it was clear evidence that the bird traveled great distances while still remaining here on planet Earth. 
Within the same century, scientists started using things such as aluminum bands wrapped around a bird's leg to begin to understand the patterns in which birds migrate. The bands are imprinted with information to identify the bird and its prior locations, allowing it to be tracked over time. Similar tags are used by scientists to track and understand the movements and life patterns of everything from fish to bears to sharks. Though still used, digital chips and other technological devices are increasingly common, making gathering information easier. Surely you won't be surprised to know that we are still learning new things about animals every day. But it's safe to say we can close the case on moon migration. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Hey people, it's time for a bird quiz. In 1845, a magazine editor, writer, and poet living in Baltimore, Maryland, was vaulted into international stardom when his poem, involving a bird, became an international hit. Can you name the poem and the poet? Edgar Allan Poe became a household name soon after his poem, The Raven, was published. The poem involves a grieving narrator who grows increasingly upset by a raven that has taken up residence in his house. The bird seems to speak, answering all of the narrator's questions with a single famous word. Nevermore. Speaking of birds, mm, speaking, many presidents have been noted for keeping parrots as pets. And none are quite as legendary as one particularly foul-mouthed parrot. According to legend, do you know which president's pet bird made a scene at his own funeral? Andrew Jackson had a tendency to use, no pun intended, foul language. This can be a problem if you have a parrot who can learn and repeat things that you say. When Jackson died in 1845, his parrot was in attendance at his funeral. However, the bird began to repeat much of the bad language it had learned from its master. Out of respect for those in attendance, the bird was taken back home. Our third and final question. In 1958, an artist named Don Featherstone was working for a company called Union Plastics in Massachusetts. He created over 750 designs of plastic objects. One of his designs became one of the most famous lawn ornaments in history. What was it? Millions of pink plastic flamingos have been sold since Featherstone created them in the late 1950s. When he was assigned the task of designing a plastic duck, he bought a live one, kept it as a pet while he created the mold, and eventually turned it loose in a local park. For his next assignment, the flamingo, he had to settle for pictures in National Geographic magazine. It is said that he and his wife kept a total of 57 of the plastic birds on their own lawn, do you have one? If you do, send us a picture. We'd love to see it. 
Our next story is read by our old pal Jason Lawrence from up in Brooklyn, New York. It's about a brave little bird who helped some soldiers during World War I. If you've ever read Harry Potter, you certainly remember how messages would be sent by owl. The big-eyed nocturnal birds regularly delivered messages to waiting wizards. That's not complete fantasy. There are several birds with an innate ability to determine their location through something called magnetoreception. Homing pigeons are a type of bird with a strong form of this ability. One taken from its coop can fly great distances back to the original location with very little trouble. For this reason, pigeons were regularly used by soldiers in several different ways. Some homing pigeons were actually equipped with tiny cameras strapped to their chests so they could take pictures of the enemy from above. Soldiers could learn a lot of valuable information this way. But more commonly, they were used to deliver messages. Many times, these messages contained information learned about the enemy. But one time, a message carried by a now-famous homing pigeon saved the lives of hundreds of people. Think about this. In a war before the invention of two-way radios, telephones, or other convenient ways of communicating, how could you get a message safely to your base if you were in the field? During World War I, in situations where a group did not have access to a telegraph cable, pigeons might be the only answer. This is the situation the 77th Division, a battalion of American soldiers, found themselves in during October of 1918. Major Charles Whittlesey and his men found themselves trapped behind enemy lines and nearly surrounded by the German army they were fighting. To make matters worse, another battalion of American soldiers didn't know where they were and were firing artillery in their direction. Intended for the German soldiers, this so-called friendly fire was mistakenly falling all around the 77th Division. If the artillery did not stop, the Americans of the 77th would meet their end. Trapped, in danger, and with nothing else to do, they turned to their last hope. Major Whittlesey and his men had traveled with a few homing pigeons, which had been given to them by their allies, the British, who had trained the amazing flyers. The Americans decided to attach a message to the leg of one of the homing pigeons, telling their allies that the weapons they were firing were falling on their own men. Two pigeons were sent. No results. They were intercepted by the German soldiers. Amidst explosions and smoke, the trapped men then opened the cage of a bird named Cher Ami. A short, direct, and clear note was written, rolled up and attached to Cher Ami's leg. It read, We are along the road parallel to 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. Someone tossed Cher Ami high into the air, and he took off for home. It was 25 miles away. As he flew, he struggled for altitude. The German army knew there was a message he was carrying, and they didn't want it delivered. Cher Ami needed to get out of range of the enemy rifles that would try to bring him back to Earth. But it wasn't easy. He beat his wings and made his way for home as fast as the wind would let him. Probably confused by the smoke and explosions on the ground, he could not get high above the earth fast enough. Poor, brave Cher Ami was shot. More than once. But rather than fall back to earth to stay, Cher Ami struggled to stay in the air. 
The only thing that concerned him was the safety of the pigeon coop that awaited him after his job was done. And so he flew. He flew through the rifle fire and he flew through the smoke. The 25 miles distance disappeared in a span of 25 minutes. Despite his injuries, he made the important flight in record time. Amazingly, Cher Ami approached the rear guard, the soldiers who were mistakenly firing their artillery on their own men, and it was noticed that the brave bird was injured. Among his injuries, his leg was nearly gone. As one group of men delivered the message to stop their shooting to the commander, another group of men scrambled to save the life of their brave little bird. That day in October 1918, Cher Ami lived up to his name. It is French for dear friend, and he was just that to the nearly 200 men whose lives he saved by fearlessly delivering the message to stop firing their weapons. And to thank their dear friend, the medics of the United States Army saved the brave bird's life. Soldiers even carved a tiny wooden leg to replace the one he lost in the flight. Upon being sent to America, Cher Ami received a host of medals and honors, making him easily the most decorated and heroic pigeon in history. If you're ever in Washington, D.C., you can visit Cher Ami. When the bird died, his body was taxidermied, or stuffed and preserved, and now he sits on display in the Smithsonian Museum. Pretty brave little bird, huh? Now, before we go, we've reworked an old folk song that we would like for you to hear. And guess what it's about? Birds. Actually, one bird. The song dates back to at least the mid-1800s and is very commonly played throughout the Appalachian region of America and commonly on instruments like fiddles and banjos. We play some of those instruments, but also have a little bit of fun making it our own. We hope you enjoy our version of Cluck Old Hen. My old hen is a good old hen. She lays an egg for the railroad men. Sometimes one, sometimes two.
Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Hey, we've had some really great feedback, and we're really excited about what we've heard from our listeners and the number of listeners that we're starting to get. So that's really exciting. Um, Please follow us on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or all three. That would be even cooler. Um, Leave a review on iTunes and Stitcher, and please, please, please tell somebody. And if you happen to be in Louisville, Kentucky, you might find one of our super awesome The Past and the Curious bumper stickers sitting around on the counter or elsewhere where free goods are at one of the local Heine Brothers coffees. Um, We got some exciting news about that coming up in the next month. Speaking of, the next episode will be about heights. Tales about heights. Some really, really cool stuff. You probably never heard one of the tales before. It was new to us. Uh, So look for that in February, and we might actually be able to squeak in uh, a bonus short episode this month. So stay tuned for that. Working on it right now. I think it's going to be cool. Thank you again. 